It has officially happened. I have become a coaching dad. I, I thought I was going to steer clear, stay around on the edges, be the dad that just comes and obnoxiously cheers for his own kids. But my middle son, Caleb, is playing some football, and uh, the league was short some coaches, and so Russell Willingham and I are stepping in. I'm officially a football coach. It's happened. Uh, I assure you my, my uh, whistle is down under my shirt somewhere. And this last Tuesday, I found myself out at team assessments. I was doing the 20-yard dash timing, so there I am with my stopwatch and watching kids run by and asking myself as I'm looking at this field full of seven- and eight-year-olds, what are the marks of a winning team? What's, what's going to, what needs to be a part for this to be a team that's going to fare well? And in some ways, as, as we're in a hinge moment in the book of Nehemiah, this week's chapter is going to introduce us to, to something similar. As, we, as we're learning from Nehemiah, as we continue to study this book, this week's going to help us begin to assess and understand what are the marks of a, a transforming community. We're going to stand alongside of Nehemiah and pay attention and say, what is it that, that forges to, to come together in a community that really is a part of rebuilding and not just rebuilding the wall but establishing a foothold for the kingdom of God where previously it has not been present. You see we're we're at this moment, this hinge moment in the book of Nehemiah where we have been focusing the 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 book itself has been focusing on this central character, this charismatic leader named Nehemiah who has come from Persia to Jerusalem because of a calling on his life to reestablish the walls of Jerusalem so that the people of God can thrive. And so we've learned what kind of leader leads in a time to rebuild. And we said that it's a, it's a called leader who has courage and who counts the cost and has locked arms with co-conspirators and continues through the, through the muddy middle and completes the task. And last week, Michael was preaching about what does it look like for the task to be completed? And now just after the walls are completed, there's a hinge in the book, and we start to look at the community. Not just the heart of the leader, but the soul of the community. And we begin to realize that the heart of the leader and the soul of the community reflect one another. Like when you, like when you look at your face in the waters of a, of a lake, that in the same way, the heart of the leader is reflected in the soul of the community. And we begin to understand what is the nature of a transformative community? Because this community that has moved to Jerusalem after living in exile for years is by definition a transformative community. A people that are moving into a scorched earth scenario where it looks like the kingdom of God has been eradicated. The people of God have been removed. But now the people of God are coming to to reestablish a foothold for worship of the true God and a land that is riddled with idolatry and pagan practices. And so we're watching and we're, we're going to pay attention to what's the makeup of the sort of community that's transformative in that way. And as we study Nehemiah chapter 7 together, we're going to find three things that must be true of a community if they're going to be a transformative community. There could be a longer list, but there couldn't be a shorter list. What I would say is this, that these are non-negotiables. The three things that we're going to discern together from this chapter are required of a community of people if they are going to be a transforming community, a community that, that holds up the flickering candle of hope and the cavern of darkness, that when it feels like all hope is lost, the, these marks are going to mark the sort of community that continues to hold out hope, to say that a new day is coming, to say that we can usher in something different. We can be the people who continue to do the great work of rebuilding. And so we're going to learn 
What must be true of a community if it's going to be a transforming community? So I want to direct your attention to Nehemiah chapter 7 with me. We're going to start by reading verses 4 to 6. And as you find that in your Bibles or as you prepare to look at that on the screen, let me remind you of what the prophet Isaiah says about the scriptures. He says that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. We're about to be interacting with eternal truths that are a plumb line for our lives, that make sense of life in the midst of so much confusion and struggle and chaos. And so we would be really wise as a people to lean in and to pay attention to the living words of God today. Nehemiah chapter 7, starting in verse 4. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. It's a summary statement from Nehemiah. He's rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem. And now he's looking around and he's realizing this work was not just because I love masonry. It's not just because I really wanted to see a wall built. It was always about people. And as he surveys the landscape, he goes, there's not very many people here and there's no homes. And he goes on to say in verse five, then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at first, and I found written in it, colon. And then, starting in verse 6, it says, These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles from Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who carried them into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. And from that point forward, there is a very long list of different families and groups and cities that all told over the next, the next dozens of verses, about 50,000 people, not all by name, but in groups, are going to be enumerated. And this is Nehemiah beginning to take account of the community. And we're going to learn several things as we pay attention to this list and we pay attention to this introduction about what sort of tr- community is a transformative community. Now, did you hear it here? Nehemiah says, God, put it into my heart to pay attention. He's thinking about the people and he's saying, who are the people that are here? Who are the people that have been willing to come back to be a part of this great work of rebuilding God's city and reestablishing God's footprint in this land that he gave to his people? And interestingly, the bulk of chapter 7 is identical to Ezra chapter 2. Ezra is the book just preceding Nehemiah, and these two books actually, uh, in, in, for a very long portion of church history, were treated as a single book. And they were treated as a single book because they both tell the same story of the people of God coming back to reestablish Jerusalem. And Ezra takes place just a little bit before Nehemiah and then overlaps with his story as he's actually going to enter our story in next week's teaching from, from Nehemiah chapter 8. And the genealogy that Nehemiah discovers actually was was written in the time of Ezra and was written as the people were coming back. And so it's actually in Ezra chapter 2. And just before that, in Ezra chapter 1, let me read for you in verses 2 through 5. This explains who this community is that Nehemiah is counting. Ezra chapter 1 verses 2 through 5 says this. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you all of his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold and goods, with beasts, 
besides freewill offerings for the house of God that's in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites and everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go to rebuild the house of the Lord that's in Jerusalem. This is a description of the people that now Nehemiah is counting and paying attention to. That's the community flung all around Jerusalem. And what we learn from this passage is that Cyrus, the great Persian king, had had something happen in his heart. And he said, the people of God can go back to Jerusalem and begin to rebuild. And did you hear that in the text it said everyone whose heart was stirred up by God went back. That word for stirred up literally means awakened. They were awakened. The word in Hebrew is ur, like U-W-R. Kids in the room, if you're watching with your parents, I want you to turn and look at your parents right now and say, ur, it means wake up, stay awake. This, this idea of ur is that the people were awakened. The idea is that Cyrus over his whole kingdom says, anybody that's ready to go back to Judah, you can go. And his voice was like a wake-up call for those that were going to move back to Judah and rebuild Jerusalem. But what I want you to imagine is this. These people have been living at a distance, a thousand miles from Jerusalem, for for over 70 years when this wake-up call was issued. That means the vast majority of them only had ever heard of Jerusalem. They'd never been there. They had families and networks and they had settled and built houses and planted vineyards. This was home. And so the truth is, it was only a small portion of the people of God that were stirred up, that were awakened. Because if we're honest, if we're, if we're honest, waking up is hard, is it not? Cyrus issued a wake-up call and the first mark of a transformative community is that they are awake. They are awakened But it was only a small group that was truly that ur, that was awakened. And the truth is that waking waking up is hard. I remember my first real job was when I was 16 years old. I did landscaping. Landscaping in the city of Atlanta. 30 days in a row. It was over 100 degrees that summer. And I had to be there a little before 7 to help load the truck each morning. And so I'd wake up early and I'd get there while it was still dark and load the truck. And I'd work for 11 or 12 hours a day. And then it was the summer before my senior year, so I'd go hang out with friends at night. I'd go to bed late, and the next morning, I'd wake up, and my alarm would be going off. And I remember that feeling of that first, that first rhythm of working hard and waking in, the, waking in the morning. I actually started setting my alarm clock for 16 minutes earlier than I really had to wake up because I could hit the snooze button twice. And so the alarm would go off, and I'd think, ah, oh, I've got... I've got 16 more minutes and I hit the button and have eight minutes and it go off again. I go, oh, I've got another eight minutes. And then when the alarm finally went off and I knew I had to get up if I was going to be to work on time, I'd wake up and I'd do that thing. You, you do this, right? When it's finally time where you know you actually have to get out of the bed, you groan and you go, oh. And I start doing this thing. Thinking if I can just stretch wide enough, if I can yawn big enough, then maybe I'll be awake. Because the truth is waking up It's hard. It's so much easier to roll back over and go to sleep. And for most of the Israelites, when Cyrus said, you can go home, most of them just rolled back over and went to sleep. But for this community, they were awakened. 
They heard the call that I can be a part of going back and establishing God's reputation in the land that he gave originally to Abraham and his ancestors. I am awake to the call of God and I'm going back. Brothers and sisters, the first mark of a transformative community is that we are awakened, awakened to God. This morning, as we're celebrating our 4th anniversary, the live celebration that will be taking place, we will be baptizing men and, and, uh, as we celebrate their new life. And as we celebrate those four men, we, we are looking at a picture of awakening, the ultimate picture of awakening. I love hearing the testimonies of new believers as they talk about the grace of God kind of bursting into their life like rays of sunlight into your bedroom that start to wake you. It might have been a loving friend or the picture of a loving community that causes someone to start to wonder, maybe God is alive. Maybe Jesus is real and who he said he is. And then it's like the birds begin to chirp as someone actually picks up the Bible and starts to read and they start to come alive. And then like the noonday sun shining bright, they finally see Jesus. E and Nate, Jaden and Vin have beheld Jesus in his glory. And they're, they're saying yes to him and being baptized because they have awakened to the glory of God. A, a transformative community is, has been awakened in that grand sense, moving from the sleep of death into resurrection life that has broken in here and now. Just before we move on, let me just say this. If you're listening and you've yet to say yes to Jesus, I'm so glad you're with us. Today is the day of salvation. Know that God has great affection for you. He has proven it by taking on flesh and walking this earth and living the life you were supposed to live and dying the death we were supposed to die so that we could, he could secure us back from our brokenness and welcome us home into the presence of a loving and perfect Father in heaven. This is the good news. Maybe even today you're coming awake to that. We have to be an awakened community. If we're going to be a part of God's transforming work in the world, would you say yes to Jesus? And to those of you who are brothers and sisters in Christ who have already trusted him, let me say this to you. Where have you been hitting the snooze button? Where have you just become drowsy, sluggish, napping on the couch? Perhaps COVID has lulled you to sleep. Please don't settle down into drowsy Christian experience. The world is alive with eternal purpose and opportunity. And God's saying he wants to partner with you to be a part of his work in the world. He's saying, wake up, be stirred by my love and my grace and step into what I have for you. Don't settle into a loveless marriage, right? Have you seen that couple that has just become roommates? They're just getting along because it's easier than going separate ways. Don't let your love relationship with the living God start to look like that. In the book of Revelation, it says, if you've lost your first love, go back and do the things you did at first. Go and have your heart stirred and awakened to the things of God because if we are going to be a transformative community, we have to be awake, living with expectation and anticipation that every day God's willing to use you. He's willing to speak through you. He's willing to give you the eyes of Jesus that you see the world the way he sees it, that you get to be a part of his transforming power in the world, but not if you're asleep, not if you're napping through it. Let us wake up and be a part of what God is calling us to. The first mark of a transforming community is that they are awakened. The second is that they're worshiping. They're worshiping. 
In verses 7 and following, we get this long list of all the people that had been awakened by God's Spirit and moved back to Judah. But I want to read just a few highlights. Look at verse 39 with me. It says, The priests, the son of Jediah, namely the house of Jeshua, 973. And then he continues to go on to list the priests. Verse 43, he says, The Levites, the sons of Jeshua, namely Cadmiel of the sons of Hodeva, 74. And he continues to list the Levites. And then skipping down to verse 46, he says, The temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Tabaoth. And then he continues to list all the temple servants. And then you skip down to verse 57, and he says this, The sons of Solomon's servants. And he goes on to list the sons of Solomon's servants. What you've got here is this. A full 40% of the verses devoted to counting the 50,000 people that have made their way back. A full 40% of those verses are devoted to just 10% of the people. 40% of the verses, 10% of the people. 50,000 people, 5,000 people had their hearts awakened to make the trip back. And their purpose was to establish worship in the community. And Nehemiah, in the recording of this story, the same passage that's recorded in Ezra, they're making a point in Ezra and Nehemiah that worship is central to the identity of this people. That's why so much ink is spilled talking about who's going to establish worship. Worship for the people of God is what forges their identity and hope and future and forward motion. If we are not a people gathered in worship before God, Who are we really? It is what shapes our identity. It's what tells us who we are. It tells us where we're headed. It tells us what matters. Interestingly, if you read the books leading up to these two, if you're to read through Kings and Chronicles, which I've been doing in my mornings with the Lord recently, if you read Kings and Chronicles straight through, the conclusion you will come to is this. Derailed worship leads to derailed people. Where worship derails in the kingdom, the kingdom derails. That happens through Kings and Chronicles. And I would just say where, where worship derails in a family, a family derails. Where worship derails in your life, your life derails. It is what lends identity and clarity and hope to us. And the truth is, I think COVID, this season that has invited us to grow sluggish and sleepy and to hit the snooze button quite literally sometimes, I think is, has made Worship feel different for many of us. This experience, it's just one more screen and a host of screens. And we are consumers all day long of news of what's going on and and what difficult thing happened this week and, and what funny thing is now on Netflix and oh yeah, I need to make sure I tune in for worship. And worship has kind of filtered down into this place where uh, Michael Atmar was, was showing me in an article this week talking about that so often we are discipled by 90 hours of screens throughout the week. And then we get about two hours with the church. And and those two hours over the last six months have also been on a screen. And it feels like it's just swamped by the noise. And as a result, worship becomes secondary, not central to our identity. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says this, and interestingly, pay attention to the way that stirring up or awakening is connected to worship here. He says this, let us hold fast, the, or pardon me, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
that Hebrews 10 is, is painting this picture that the way that we're stirred up to love and good works is by continuing to prioritize our time together in worship. Now, I know that for some, literally being together, physically being together in the near future is not going to be possible or likely. But what I would invite you to do is this. I just want to highlight the importance of corporate worship continuing to be central for us as a people. Because this season, I think, is a threat to that reality. Three simple uh, encouragements. Three Ps around making sure that worship stays central for you. Plan for it. The way that you're going to worship week in and week out on a Sunday morning starts on your Saturday night. The way that you're praying as you're going to bed, the time you go to bed, the way that you set aside time that you know you have planned for worship to stay central in your home and in your life. Pray. Pray during worship. This is not to be a passive experience. This is not just to consume, like watching the news later today, that when the Bible is open and we as a community are situating ourselves under its authority, you are to be active. As active as I am in the preaching of it, you're to be active in the receiving of it. You're to be praying, God, help this scripture to find purchase in me and help me make sense of that. And you're to be singing out and participating in the parts of liturgy that I think the danger is that we can start to kind of knock out some chores while it's on in the background. And it just, well, if we don't hit it on Sunday morning, that's fine. We'll hit it later in the week. And maybe I'll just catch the sermon and eliminate this, the singing and the liturgy. And I just want to invite you to make sure that, that worship is lending central identity to us because we're commanded to it in Hebrews. It's been modeled for us throughout the scriptures. It's central to these people establishing their identity in the land. We are to be a worshiping people. Plan for it, pray, and lastly, protect it. Protect it. Do not let this become an optional add-on secondary reality. This forges our identity and future and hope and forward motion and fruitfulness. We are a worshiping body. You see, we're awakened and we worship. And those two things are cyclically engaged. We are awakened to worship and we worship to awaken ourselves and round and round we go. Well, there's a final mark of a transformative community that we get at the end of this chapter in verses 66 through 72. Let me read those verses for us. It says this, the whole assembly was together, 42,360 beside their male and female servants of whom there were 7,337, about 50,000 total. They had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. That's it. We know all the people, we know all the animals. Those are the ones that were there. Now catch this. Now some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold. 50 basins, 30 priest garments, and 500 minas of silver. Some of the heads of the father's houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,000 minas of silver and 67 priests' garments. Well, what's happening here? This awakened and worshipful community is responding in extreme generosity. It starts with the leaders and it trickles down until everyone is giving. And this group of mistreated and oppressed exiles that are poor and living amidst rubble give 600 pounds of gold and 6,000 pounds of silver to the work of God. Extreme generosity erupting out of poverty. No doubt this was a boon to Nehemiah's 
heart as a leader, as he's seeing in the soul of the community, things that quite frankly were true of his own life that he's already told us in chapter five. He has been generous and sacrificial and committed, but the reflection of the leader is seen in the soul of the community. And he's saying, wow, look at this people that with extreme generosity, they're in, they're in. And what we see is this is a community that would generate awe in the hearts and lives of the people. Interestingly, they are awake, worshiping, and extreme generosity, A-W-E, and they're pushing awe into the community as people are going, wow, something is going on there. They are beginning to, to establish God's reputation in this land. And beautifully, I just want us to hear this, Seven Mile Road, I am not ultimately your leader. And we together need to recognize that who leads us, the heart of the leader, is going to shape the soul of the community. We together are a family situating ourselves and waiting to be led by King Jesus. Saying, Jesus, if you call us, we'll go. What does your character call us to? What does your word call us to? We're yours. And as his heart begins to shape our soul, it should look like A-W-E. We should be awakened that, that he is the ultimate awakened king. And he didn't awake after a few hits of the snooze button. When he woke up on Sunday morning, he woke up with an earthquake. It shook the ground as he came back from death to life. And it wasn't just awake. It was awake with radiant, indestructible life. If we want someone that is a picture of what it means to be vibrant and alive and awake, his name is truth and life. His name is life. He is awake like no one else and seated on a throne today. And he's seated on a throne surrounded by worship. To be in the presence of this king is to be stunned. The angels fall on their faces in his presence and go, who is like you? Can you see it? Imagine it with me. Be active with me. He's on a throne and there's a glassy sea and he's surrounded by a rainbow and angels are falling down and they're saying, holy, 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 who is like you? When we become awake to his wakefulness and we enter into the worship that's already happening, we're not starting anything. We're coming into the party late. It's been going on eternally and we're stepping into it. And in that place, it just makes sense. We go like this, like not just my money, but my whole life, like whatever I have, who else am I going to spend it on? What else am I going to give it to? It's his. When the heart of that leader dawns on us as a people, we see his goodness. We see his power. We see his beauty. We become a people of awe. Awake, worshiping, extreme generosity. And that is a transformative community. Let me pray for us. Ur. Ur, God, wake us up. Wake us up. The world needs hope. It needs life right now. It needs a community that's awake. It needs a community that is ready to be used by you. It needs your church. The world needs the church right now because they need Jesus. They need hope and they need life. It is a time to rebuild. God, make us this sort of community. A community of awe. A community of
communion that says our lives are not our own, our money is not our own, our time is not our own. Jesus, you own us, and we don't want to be anybody else's. So if you tell us to jump, we say how high. If you say go that direction, we say we're in. Here we are. Send us. We want to be a community that transforms our world. For your glory, for our joy. Amen.